This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Okay, I'm going to kick things off. Good morning. Hello. Thank you for dressing up um, on this beautiful Sunday morning to sit in this decidedly anti-utopian space. <laughs> um, welcome to this conversation about um, everything for everyone, an oral history of the New York Commune 2052 to 2072, um, a conversation about speculative fiction and the post-capitalist future. So my name is Sophie Lewis and I'll introduce myself really briefly and Iman Abdelhadi a little bit less briefly again in a minute, but before I do that, I am going to read out the reminder that you're all familiar with by this point, uh, that all socialism conference attendees are required to wear masks, fully covering the nose and mouth while indoors in conference spaces, including hallways and meeting rooms. Uh, We will be wearing no masks while conversing um, and uh, while actively speaking and, and, and you, you are required to, to wear masks even while asking questions and this is in policy this is a policy in place to protect um, all of us and be you know compromised from the risk of contracting COVID. Okay. <laughs> um, so I'm Sophie Lewis. I'm a critical utopianist of the um, O'Brien Abdel Hadi school. Um, my offerings have been expressed uh, so far in two books, uh, Full Surrogacy Now, Feminism Against Family in 2019 with Verso and Abolish the Family, a Manifesto for Care and Liberation, which I'll be talking about this evening with Rosie Warren of Salvage Quarterly. Um, and uh, my pronouns are they and she, and I live in Philadelphia where I write full-time, and I also teach social theory at the um, Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. Uh, but we're not here to talk about me. We are here to talk about the wonderful Iman Abdelhadi, who is an academic activist and artist who writes and thinks at the intersection of identity, politics, sexuality, and gender. Um, her academic work has been published in numerous peer-reviewed journals and covered by press outlets such as Washington Post, Associated Press, and NPR. She is the co-author with M.E. O'Brien of uh, Everything for Everyone, an oral history of the New York Commune 2052 to 2072, and it is published by Common Notions um, last month. This last last month. Yeah, obviously. And guess what? Um, it is not available in the bookshop down the hall because it has sold out and it has gone into. <laughs> gone into a second printing within mere weeks. 
Uh, so make sure you go online and, and, and find some way to get your hands on a copy by hook or crook. Um, so yeah, and, and Iman, you also write poetry and essays which have appeared in numerous outlets and you received your PhD in sociology from New York, New York University in 2019. You're currently an assistant professor at the University of Chicago um, writing a book about Muslim women. Uh, and you can follow Iman at, at Iman Abdel Hadi. Okay, um, I'll be taking um, you know three questions at a time when we get to Q&A, which is the focus of all the sessions at this conference, which I appreciate. Um, three minute time limit, you know the score. And I'm encouraging, uh, as always, people to address each other, the whole room, right, you know, rather than just speaking to us, even though this is, in a sense, an author interview. You know, I will be interviewing. Um, Iman. And we are being recorded as audio, not as video. All right. Um, could I possibly get a small show of hands in the room, given the immense success that this book has had since it came out? Has anybody actually read it? Okay. Great. A few. That's cool. That's cool. So, yeah, I just wanted to get a sense for you now how much uh, introductory spiel I should do. I, I, I definitely should explain this, uh, what this document is. Um, so as the subtitle indicates, it's an oral history of the New York commune. What is the New York commune? Um, it's the post-capitalist horizon. 2052-2072, um, uh, that's 30 years from this year that the events in this book begin. Iman and M.E imagine themselves as um, oral historians um, of uh, a future that is extremely possible. Um, and I have, been, I have been extremely moved, um, not just by reading the book um, and immersing myself in the, uh, in the sensibility, the sort of trauma-informed, um, uh, deeply uh, kind, um, also very sort of unromantic and real and up for uh, messiness, up for uh, even a degree of sort of necessary political violence, sort of sensibility of the whole thing. But also by the way that I have seen um, during this very hopeless and nihilism-inducing moment in the pandemic where people have noticed a sort of degree of desolation creeping in, giving, you know, a giving up, right, of, the, of the, the effort even to look after one another on, at the level of masking, you know, in, even in less spaces. But this book is almost like a, a tonic. It, 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 it's, uh, it's, it's made a huge difference in my community, I can actually say, you know. Um, at, no, truly. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, uh, it, of course, it, it's uh, it's a funny thing to be discussing a work of fiction um, when down the corridor, you know, there is a panel on Palestinian liberation in you know the real present world going on. Um, because I mean, Palestinian liberation and the final intifada is a huge part um, of this future um, that is mapped out. 
Um, and, and, and I mean, we were joking over coffee that, you know, you, you, you can't do that. You can't put Iman and the other sort of <laughs> Palestinian liberationists in separate rooms. What are they trying to do? Like, separate them and, and <laughs> but, you know, of course, scheduling is a, is a nightmare. So we're, we're going to talk a little bit today, I hope, uh, about, about the, the uses of educating our, our revolutionary desire. Uh, via revolutionary art like this. And we're going to talk about family abolition because of all the people, and there are many, who have interviewed Iman and Emmy. You know, I'm, I'm the person who is likely going to be interested in that dimension of things, for indeed this is um, a, a, a story about how the family begins to be abolished. Um, so enough, enough from me, really. I guess, just to kick us off, um, I believe I've heard that the initial like idea or grain uh, for this book had to do also with an RPG game you played. <laughs> do we have any RPG game players in the audience? That's really interesting. <laughs> Not shocked that this is a popular uh, form for this group. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, my co-author Emmy um, or Michelle, um, she. So part of the emphasis for this book is sort of ten years of friendship and talking about um, communism and um, revolution and gender um, for for so long. Um, uh, Michelle and I went to grad school together and lived one block away from each other in Brooklyn for many years, um, and so spent inordinate amounts of time together. And she, at some point, um, shortly after the 2016 election um, started a role-playing game in which we were all um, CUNY students um, fighting the fash and it was like the 2050s and, um, and you know things were popping off and um, she knows that I'm someone who needs the path of least resistance and so when she pitched the book to me she was like you could write up your character from the RPG game um, yeah, and I was like okay well let's cut some work down and that. Uh, so if you do end up with the book, um, Milkis Chaudhary, who is chapter four, um, is the is was my character from from that game. Uh, so she's a um, she's a she's the child of um, hospital workers and immigrants uh, from Bangladesh, and she you know sort of plays this big role in setting up a Jackson Heights commune. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So. Um, Belcrease Chowdhury, right? Yeah. Um, is that somebody who, um, like, I suppose this is a, maybe this is an odd question, but I'm really fascinated by by fiction writing because I, for some reason, have have never allowed myself. You know, uh, um, I, I think um, there's something to be said about how you and Michelle uh, perhaps don't really primarily inhabit literary world. No, <laughs> we are not novelists, but, um, except I guess technically now, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, it makes me sort of think of the every cook can govern principle, sort of, you know, um, every psychoanalyst or sociologist or uh, Palestinian liberation activist or whatever can write uh, a, a utopian novel, I suppose. But this is, that, that's Yeah, you all should. Highly encourage it. But it's, I mean, obviously, that sounds as though I'm saying, you know, this is a 
a literary company, yeah. it clearly is, like, you know, the literary establishment has been very taken <laughs> as well, so congratulations on that one. But yeah, I mean, um, there is a sense of place um, in this in this text. You, you and Michelle both um, have been um, academics, activists, social workers, oral um, historians, um, um, active in the sort of HIV services and trans um, uh, communities, uh, Marxist feminist mobilizations. And you, you, you said, you know, you were neighbors, and this is your territory in a way, isn't it? That you, that you are communizing in your imaginations. Um, so do you want to speak a little bit about the specificities, I guess, of, of New York? Like what is, um, Wait, tell us the story a little bit, you know? Where in New York did it kick off when capitalism fell? Um, and why? <laughs> sure. Where didn't it? <laughs> well, um, it was important to us. I mean, I think this is in some ways a love letter to New York from both of us who are both uh, New Yorkers in different ways. I mean, I'm the kind of classic case of the Midwestern girl who like went to New York and was like, I'm home, you know, and has been stuck on the city ever since. Um, it's very cliche, it's very embarrassing, but, you know, I am who I am. And Michelle has lived there for, for 20 years and, you know, has, has spent a long time in struggle in the city. Um, so, but I think at the end of the day, when we kind of conceptualize this book, we realize like the revolution doesn't begin in New York. Ultimately, it's um, uh, we we think a lot about the, the the in the one of the kind of core theories of the book is that the modern nation state falls, and 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 that um, the fall of the modern nation state is is very important for the fall of capitalism, or at least is you know is a key um, step along the way, um, and it basically falls because of increasing climate crisis. Um, and so we thought a lot about where states are weaker in the world, and and so actually, you know, the Levant chapter, the Palestinian liberation chapter, um, is chapter two, and it happens early on, and we, so we see the revolution beginning in other places. Um, it, it doesn't start in the U.S., and the U.S. is actually one of the last places to sort of uh, where where the where the um, nation state falls. So, um, but it was really important to us to think about okay, if we are writing a history of the revolution in New York as well as a global revolution that we see through different New Yorkers' eyes, because the city is so global. Um, to think about, so the very first chapter, which is written by Michelle, um, is uh, a, a, a black trans um, uh, sex worker who lives in the Bronx, and she participates in basically a food riot that marks the beginning of these events. Um, and the food riot is uh, takes place in Hunts Point, which is a which is a real place in the Bronx that is uh, key to kind of the distribution of food in the city. So it was really important to us. So on the one hand, on the kind of like global macro theory level, right, this idea of the modern nation state falling. But it was really important to us um, 
to write on the sort of micro level from the place of social reproduction, right? So thinking a lot about how people get fed and clothed and housed and the ways that um, especially feminized labor is a part of that, right? Um, so thinking about um, sex workers and food workers and hospital workers and, and the sort of like takeover of these reproductive spaces in a moment where um, the state and the market are no longer the, the main vehicles for um, for this kind of you know distribution of resources and this uh, um, yeah and, and for people's like basic needs being met uh, so that's a really kind of important core theme in the book and so that's why like Hans point is like is a is a key uh, is a key moment and, and place um, it's really that moment where food is taken over that is the sort of like the start the spark of New York's transition it was extraordinary to hear Ruth Wilson Gilmore talking about Hunt's Point yesterday in the like luminous keynote that I believe you weren't able to be at. Yeah. But it was it was one of those moments where the fiction I've been reading and the the reality of uh, you know revolutionary possibility began to sort of uh, approach one another a little bit in my mind. Mm -hmm. um, okay, thank you. Um, I am really interested in uh, the question of utopianism as it operates in this crowd. Uh, it's my first socialism conference, and um, I've been to similar convergences in the past. I certainly am familiar with um, you know, the many, many debates and uh, tendencies that exist, and have existed for 200 years about the value of utopia, the status of the utopian in, for example, Marxism, right? Uh, utopia as a, a dirty word, you know, utopian as a pejorative, um, the very important um, and needed critique of a certain uh, tradition of colonial utopianism, which proceeds uh, from a sort of terra nuius of the mind uh, in, in, in building a blueprint of uh, a sort of post-political ideal society, right? And at the same time, um, personally, uh, I'm extremely committed to uh, the critical utopian tradition, including the decolonial uh, utopian tradition that I've learned so much from um, Michelle and yourself and Madeline Lane McKinley and Dave Bell and others about, which is more about a methodology of radical negation, radical denaturalization of the given, um, and a commitment to desiring it all, uh, of wanting it, of wanting everything, um, uh, and that's that's kind of what um, utopia for me primarily is useful for as a as an orientation uh, of method almost. Um, and I, I have been so lucky as to be sent by by Michelle um, a forthcoming manuscript on family abolition, a, a, a full book forthcoming from Pluto next year. And I haven't managed to read it all, but I am. Um, uh, I think I, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to read out a little line, which it's not like I'm being called out exactly, but it's, I, you know, it, it's like so. So she says, much excellent writing on family abolition skillfully sidesteps the question of what is to come. Madeline Lane McKinley, Sophie Lewis, Tiffany Latabo King, and others offer powerful critiques of the family form argue persuasively and explicitly for the need to abolish the family and point to present refusals of the family. 
they are wisely <laughs> leaving it to the future to find new ways of life. This move is sound and defensible. <laughs> you can kind of hear the butt that's coming, right? <laughs> um, so in, instead of reading out um, her very painstaking butt, um, perhaps I, may I ask you to kind of uh, uh, improvise it, as it were. Like, what is the butt there? What, what is the, the butt? Like, is it too easy simply to sidestep the question of, of what is to come? And what, what do you, you know, if it's not sort of, uh, you know, too awkward to ask you, but what is the value, right, of, 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 of for politics, of this kind of endeavor? Right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the Marxist critique, and I, I mean, Marx was very critical of, of utopian, of a utopian tradition in which people, you know, thought that they could kind of roadmap a future and then get rich people to pay for it, um, and um, I think he was, he was rightly critical of, of this, of this impulse. Um, and I, I think, you know, I really like what you said about method and denationalization of, of the present. Um, because um, at the end of the day, we're not providing a roadmap, right? We're not, you know, some of the questions we've gotten at events are like, how do we use this, you know? And to me, it's like, I, I think there's a lot from our experiences of struggle, of encampments, of protests, of these types of things in here. But ultimately, the, I think the political value is to sort of take back our right to hope um, for a different future and our right to imagine um, a different reality than the extremely brutal one that we that we're living in, uh, and it's, it's it's actually funny. To, I mean, I think it speaks to the state of the world that our book is considered utopian because there's so much dystopia in this book. <laughs> I mean, things get a lot worse before they get better. Um, we don't petition our way out of capitalism. You know, there's no change.org. Um, email email chain and then we're like all right we're done now um, like things get rough um, and so you know I, I think I think that it speaks to the sort of horror of this moment um, that we're living in and the great violence of not being able to imagine something other than this sort of this sort of like structural prison that we live in um, and I, I think, um, you know, and I, I think for those who are in the kind of speculative fiction world, there's this sort of like cliche at this point of that it's easier to imagine the end of human civilization than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. Um, and like, we're kind of saying no. <laughs> you, you actually, like, no. Um, imagine a world in which we live better than we do now, a world where we get what we deserve and where the plenty of the earth and like human ingenuity and all the things that we've created as a species are spread out, you know, um, and, and where we all really do have everything, we really do have everything for everyone. And so, um, so that's like I think that's the political utility of the book. It's not actually in the sort of like details of exactly what happens. And I, you know, I love all the people who are getting, are fighting are beginning to fight about whether certain insurrections happen in the same way. Fine, let's do it. Let's fight that out. Like let's argue about it. I think that's great. You know, um, but the idea is, can we place ourselves in a future that is different than this one? And I think I think we can and we should and we must.
well, I, uh, with the greatest love in the world, everybody I know quotes that line, you know, Mark Fisher or Jameson or, you know, sort of different key theologians given that it is easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And while it had its place, I believe, in a certain moment of diagnosis of capitalist realism, I think it has crept into becoming a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I have my little riff on it, um, as you may know, that it's, uh, while that may be true, it's still easier to imagine the end of capitalism than the end of the family. Um, mm. And so let's get into it a little bit. Uh, people here may not understand what people have meant historically um, in a genealogy that goes back to Charles Fourier, the French utopian socialist, um, Alexandre Kollontai, um, you know, uh, Firestone, Third World, gay and uh, lesbian sort of uh, revolutionary groups in the 60s and 70s. You know, and in a sense, this like revival of 21st century transgender Marxist approaches to the private nuclear household and the deprivatization of care. So let me, you know, assuage your possible alarm and say straight up that there is, uh, a, you know, no commonality at all uh, between, you know, uh, the state destruction of kinship, uh, or you know, the state persecution of, uh, in particular, you know, black and indigenous. Uh, familial forms and this 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 horizon of family abolition. On, on the contrary, it is in fact uh, people who have been dispossessed uh, from the sort of wages of the family, uh, which Kathy Weeks defines as essentially the privatization of care, right? Yes. Uh, who are uh, the, who have historically given us the tools uh, to imagine uh, a, a proliferation of care um, and an abundance. Uh, in, in, in place of the organized austerity uh, that we have and cling to uh, for very good reason because, <laughs> because of our survival needs, right, in, in the present. Kathy Weeks also suggests that the abolition of the family is a horizon so long that it is almost impossible to fully desire it in the present, let alone imagine it. And I will say that uh, the chapter in um, in uh, Everything for Everyone on uh, gestation work um, is interesting in the sense that it is, uh, it, it, it's perhaps one of the most sort of intermediary chapters, right? It, it's, it's, it's showing how long this path is. Um, and I, I'm gonna ask you a little bit about this character, Latif Timbers. Um, so uh, Iman Abdelhadi, the, the character in this book, asks um, uh, uh, Latif Timbers uh, in an interview in the uh, Bed-Stuy Gestation Center uh, on January 2nd of 2069 uh, to explain what it means to be a gestation care coordinator um, in this, in this uh, future version of New York. Um, and a bit that I really appreciate in this interview is when Latif sort of turns the tables a little bit uh, and asks Iman Abdelhadi, the character, uh, how on earth it worked, like, before. <laughs> so things have changed. They haven't, you know, it's not a full post-family situation, right? But we're on the way. And, Lat and Latif says, um, so, you know, how did it, like, work for you, right? Uh, I've been reading more and more about how people lived before. I've been realizing that family was usually blood, and that's who you lived with and who you lived with was really tied into what you got. So like, if your blood had food, you had food. 
If they had a nice house and heat, you did too. If they didn't, well, tough shit for you. You were fucked. Abdul Hadi laughs. Yes, I'm old enough to confirm that that's how we lived for a long time. Uh, Latif, talking to the elders and reading history, I realized people were really trying to get rid of that system with the communes. Honestly, it's hard to imagine making all your choices based on blood. Why would it matter so fucking much who gave birth to you? Or who you fell in love with? Or who happened to have the same parent? Like, what if those people were straight up assholes? <laughs> or just didn't know how to take care of you? And people only had two parents? Who were expected to take care of everything? <laughs> so inefficient! <laughs> like, why wouldn't you collectivize things like childcare? It makes no goddamn sense! It really doesn't. <laughs> so, tell, tell, tell us a little bit about you and, and M.E.'s sort of conversations about the abolition of uh, the private nuclear household, if you don't mind. Yeah, I mean, the core thesis here, oh God, I'm such an academic, I'm like, the thesis, the theory. Um, yeah, I mean, the core, the core argument is that you, you, you disentangle people's material well-being, right? And that's what Latifa is sort of commenting on, right? The idea that your material well-being would be tied to who you were in love with, or who parented you, or who you were parenting, that these things, that this makes no sense, right? I mean, this is a future in which we all have everything that we need, right? Like there is no such thing as being unhoused. There is no such thing as going hungry. Um, there is no such thing as not having clothes or, you know, and, and so, or medical medical care or any of these things. And so in, in essence, these things are disentangled from the sort of like the, the kinship networks and, and, and love networks that people create. Um, so you essentially, yeah, you, you, you pull these things apart and you collectivize the act of um, caring for and, and producing a new generation. Um, and that doesn't mean that people don't have dyadic like relationships or like small groups that they're closer to, right? You're not equally close. This is not an atomized future. Um, I, I, I think, you know, it's funny to me thinking about um, the sort of like capitalist propaganda around around what a kind of communist version of the world would look like, and I think you know the sort of like classic like black and white like propaganda movie ideas, like you know everything is cookie cutter and we all have the same thing and we all live in the same exact house, and I'm like. That's how we live now. <laughs> we are in the cookie cutter society. Like there are like two to three maximum sustainable family forms under capitalism. And like if you've ever lived in a collective house, if you've ever attempted to share resources with other people, you know how immensely difficult that is because everything in the structure disincentivizes it and makes it impossible. And so it was really important to us to show how capacious the ways that we, you know, what if we disentangle these these two things, how that we see like true diversity, right? Not like capital D diversity, HR rep diversity, but like actual different, you know, different ways of relating to each other. And so, and, and to go back to the question about place, right? We think a lot about the structure of the city, right? That if you are in, 
places with big buildings, you're going to have different commune, like slightly different communes than, you know, a street with all brownstones, right? And that's going to, you know, so the sort of like the kind of symbiotic relationship between the, the, the urban landscape and the kind of social reproductive forms that emerge within those landscapes. Um, it's, it's something that's really sort of important in the book, and and, and, and Latif is one of a few characters who um, show us the kind of the aftermath because he um, they're one of the younger characters in the book. Um, so uh, you know, so we try to kind of that's one of the things that oral history the oral history form lets us do is to sort of uh, play with different temporalities, um, different trajectories. Uh, now I'm just on a random rant about that. Yeah. <laughs> I think I answered the question, but let me know if I did it. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's beautiful. I think, you know, we have been speaking, just I've been hogging Iman for uh, 32 minutes. Um, so I think I'm going to turn it over to you. So think of your questions. The mic is at the front. Okay, it's not quite I'm right the there. Yeah, I'm just going to sort of. Um, uh, you know, wrap, wrap up my, my, my portion of this of this session by um, by reading out. I think every well, it's been certainly been quoted uh, b before. Um, what is it uh, in my I've written it down somewhere and I've lost it. Um, it's been in several interviews. So one of the, the starting points of the communization charted here is described as uh, we took something that was property and made it life. Um, and I, I just. Oh, I just kind of want to frame that a little bit. Um, Hannah Black uh, wrote about this book that um, Iman and Emmy's tall tales of the future draw on real experiences of the past and present. Um, and they've created, wrote Hannah, um, a vivid image of the possibility that we will one day make a home of the world. Mm. Um, and I also, I also sort of cling to that a little bit as a, as a point of hope. Um, I, my own, I, I was also sort of asked to blur a bit, which is flattering, um, and I, I, I sort of wrote much too much. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I gushed that, you know, upon reaching the end, I had tears in my eyes, and I really took to heart the injunction of the 19th century utopian feminist, inventor of the word feminism, Charles Fourier. You know, problematic fave. Um, Kinky science fiction writer, according to Michelle, very very intent on the importance of orgies uh, in the in the post-familial, post-capitalist future. Um, he, and, and he's quoted in the book as saying, "Your behaviour should be governed from now on by the ease and proximity of this immense revolution." Thanks for listening. If you like this episode. Subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.